Hello, welcome to Lung Cancer Voices, a Lung Cancer Canada podcast. My name is Christina Sitt. You may recognize me if you listen to our What's New In webinar series. This special edition of Lung Cancer Voices has been adapted from the live webinar. If you like these webinars and the Lung Cancer Voices podcast, please don't forget to like or subscribe. Thank you for your support. Hello. My name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Christina Sitt. I'm part of the team at Lung Cancer Canada, and welcome to our What's New webinar series. Today, we have a very special webinar that is uh, um, sharing the highlights of the Canadian Lung Cancer Conference. It was the 21st year of the uh, Canadian Lung Cancer Conference this year, and today on our panel, we have our president, Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, as well as the uh, co-chair of the Canadian Lung Cancer Conference, Dr. Cheryl Ho, who is also a member of Lung Cancer Canada's Medical Advisory Committee, and then Dr. Justin um, Gaynor from Massachusetts General Hospital, who also has a very interesting title of Director of Targeted Immunotherapy down there. So I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price uh, for to, to moderate this session. But in uh, with all the questions that you may have, please type them into the Q&A box. We will address them at the end. And um, Unfortunately, please understand that we are not able to ad uh, address individual medical questions on this webinar, but uh, we will try to speak generally uh, in a uh, generalized, uh, to a ge uh, what applies to a general population. So over to you, Dr. Wheatley-Price. Great, thank you, Christina. And um, hello everyone, wherever you are calling in from across the country or indeed um, internationally, that this is our fourth episode of this new webinar series that we started um, in November called What's New in Lung Cancer. And uh, you can um, go to the Lung Cancer Canada website if you want to uh, look at previous uh, versions of this or previous episodes. We've, we've covered EGFR type lung cancer, ALK lung cancer. Uh, last month, uh, I spoke with Dr. Frances Shepard from Toronto and she sort of, uh, gazed into her crystal ball of the newest things coming in lung cancer. And next month, uh, watch out for um, a webinar which will just be talking about immunotherapy in lung cancer, which has really revolutionized what we do in the last uh, few years. So there's some, um, some things to, uh, to look forward to. Uh, so what we're gonna do for the next uh, 45 minutes or so is I'm gonna talk with Dr. Ho and Dr. Gaynor about the Canadian Lung Cancer Conference, which took place uh, about 10 days ago and um, it's an annual conference and, and Dr. Ho will tell us a bit more about it in a moment. And Dr. Gaynor was the invited plenary speaker. And you've, you saw from the credentials that uh, Christina put up there, um, Dr. Ho is uh, one of the editors of the Journal of Thoracic Oncology, which is our premier lung cancer academic journal. Uh, she's a co-chair of the Canadian Lung Cancer Conference. Uh, she is a medical oncologist at BC Cancer in Vancouver. Um, she's a member of the board and the Medical Advisory Committee of Lung Cancer Canada. And uh, I don't know where she has time to join webinars like this. Dr. Gaynor, I imagine, equally busy in Boston um, as the Director for Thoracic Cancers at, at Massachusetts General. 
and uh, you heard the, um, uh, the director of the, uh, we get this right, the targeted immunotherapy, and I think that's going to be something that we talk about soon. Um, so you don't want to hear me rambling on with introductions, so I'm going to get straight to this. So Dr. Ho um, or Cheryl, be informal, um, what is the Canadian Lung Cancer Conference? What, what happens? Thanks, Paul. Um, as Christina mentioned, the Canadian Lung Cancer Conference is a national meeting that we host in Vancouver that we've, we've done so for the past 21, 21 years. Initially started as the, the Western um, Lung Conference, but then realized that was an opportunity for us to network across the country um, with medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, surgeons, respirologists, just I think for an opportunity to share what's going on in our respective communities also to network about what clinical trial opportunities were and different directions in which we could uh, foster the, the, the network across Canada. And the second piece to our, our conference is also that we host a TLC meeting, which is training in lung cancer. And that is where we invite residents and fellows from across the country to come and do some additional training or focus in, in lung cancer so that we can foster our next generation of lung cancer specialists. Um, the meetings generally about 300 people that attend and we have fabulous international well-renowned speakers like Dr. Gaynor uh, come and speak at our meeting. Um, and in fact, this year, because of the pandemic, we had to go virtual and we had over 500 participants. So lots of opportunity to learn at the meeting this year. Glad you mentioned the, the TLC bit, and um, it's, it's been a terrific opportunity for our trainees um, across the country to, to go to the meeting and they hear from the international speakers and, and the top really lung cancer clinicians and researchers um, in Canada, and generally free of charge. Yeah? The conference covers the trainees' expenses, yes. which, um, which is helpful when you're a trainee. So this year, uh, maybe Cheryl, I'll just stick with you. Why, why did you invite Dr. Gaynor to speak, and then I'll we'll ask him what he talked about. Do you even have to ask why we invited Dr. Gaynor? Had great speakers, and and I just wondered <laughs> what what is it that you wanted this year, and and why did you why did you focus on Dr. Gaynor? Was he the only guy available? <laughs> you know, I think that Dr. Gaynor has uh, uh, an incredible reputation in terms of research and development um, uh, across multiple areas in, in thinking around treatment for lung cancer, uh, both in the targeted therapy arena. So when we're looking at uh, specific kinds of mistakes that we see in lung cancer and therapies around that, as well as in, uh, as you've mentioned, the immunotherapy arena, where we're thinking about how do we harness the immune system to help um, treat lung cancer. So there were so many reasons um, why we thought we could benefit from her his expertise and of course as he will explain to us shortly um, there was a lot to discuss and many new things to share from his research so yeah i'm just in apologies for me being a little bit uh um uh cheeky there um you're you're welcome and welcome to the webinar um thanks so much for having me thanks so much dr o for the kind words you're you're the title of your presentation that you gave was elucidating mechanisms of resistance to novel therapies in lung cancer. So that's quite a lot to unpack. Um, could we just start off with resistance? And yeah. what is resistance and, and where does that word come from in, in cancer? 
Yeah, so so my my background is in developing new drugs, new new treatments for lung cancer. And uh, as Cheryl alluded to, you know, we, in the last 15 years, there's really been a transformation in how we've treated lung cancer. And it's really arisen because of the development of two big categories of treatment. Uh, the first being targeted therapy, which is where you're trying, where, where you, you, you actually take a tumor specimen and you try to do genetic sequencing. That is, you, you, you take the, you look at the, the blueprints, you know, the, the DNA within a tumor specimen, and we recognize that tumors, specifically lung cancer, can have these misspellings. Um, and these misspellings uh, lead to vulnerabilities. Uh, and we can um, exploit those vulnerabilities with targeted therapies. That is, these are pills that block a given vulnerability. Um, and, and the other major category of treatment that, that has really revolutionized the treatment of lung cancer has been immunotherapy, that is trying to stimulate one's own immune system instead of recognizing viruses or bacteria or, or other uh, pathogens, instead actually using the immune system to recognize and attack cancer. Now, one of the challenges in both of these categories is, is the development of resistance. And, and I think of that as how uh, cancers um, can, can evade those treatments. You know, cancers are smart. Um, and anytime we throw something against them, they have this ability to adapt. And so resistance is really just the systematic way of trying to figure out how cancers are adapting to our current therapies. And for me, I think that's critical because it can inform what we do next. It, it informs me as a drug developer, thinking about you know, where, what types of drugs we should use next. And is it a single drug or do we need some sort of combination strategy? And so my talk was really centered around that approach and, and examples that we've had over the last couple of years of where we've used our understanding of drug resistance to develop new therapies. I sometimes think of it as a, if I try to go home from the hospital, I just jump on the highway. And, uh, but if there's been a, an accident or something on the highway, but my normal route home is not open to me, it's, it's resisting me. I've got to find some other pathway, which, which needs a roadmap. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's an excellent analogy for it. So is it inevitable that cancers become resistant to the initial treatments? That's a great question. I think we, we could, you know, folks like us, you know, sometimes sit around tables and, and debate, debate that question. You know, I, I think it may differ depending on the type of drug we're talking about and which, which category. You know, I think for targeted therapies, uh, what we've observed is that over time, yes, at some point the cancer will figure out a way around the targeted therapy, but that can take years and years and years and years. With and, and with targeted therapy, it's a bit easier to figure out how that resistance emerges. Like what 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 is the biology that that uh, underlies that resistance? Um, for immunotherapy, I, these drugs are, are first are newer. 
right? We, we've only been using them in lung cancer since 2013. Um, and the power of immunotherapy, I think one of the reasons why there, there's so much uh, hype around immunotherapy is that there is a subset of people who have these very durable, long-term uh, responses to that treatment. Uh, do I, is, is it a cure? I, I don't know. Um, and, you know, the, the immunotherapy, I, I think, again, there's hype behind it because, you know, the, the most powerful thing about our immune system is this capacity for memory, right? You know, if, if we think about, uh, you know, vaccines were received as a child and, and other things, we don't receive those every year. I mean, we can talk about flu and that's a different story because the flu, the virus changes each year, but, but um, that's incredibly powerful, right? You know, a treatment that you got decades before is still protecting you to, to this day. And, and so that's something, you know, that if we can leverage the immune system to make the same durable control against cancer, that's incredibly powerful. And I think that's why there's so much excitement around immunotherapy. Right. Yeah, I saw some people just in the clinic this morning, somebody on a targeted therapy, crizotinib, has been on it for five years, no problems. And somebody who's been on immunotherapy um, for about two and a half years now, and there's no sign of any cancer. It's, uh, so we, we're seeing a lot of this. So tell me, uh, and maybe Boston and Mass General is, is uh, different to other parts in the States where in outside academic centers, but or maybe it's not, maybe you could tell us that too, but how do you find resistance? What, what do you do if you see somebody in your clinic whose initial treatment doesn't seem to be working? Does that a priori mean that there's resistance or could even there be other factors as to why a drug's not working anymore? Yeah, it's, it's a great question and I, I think I'll start with the targeted therapy piece because I, th I think that's more straightforward a and then the immunotherapy piece uh, next. So, you know, I think this is evolving. In the, in the last 15 years, there's, there's been a major push in the lung cancer community, rightfully so, to say, even at the time of diagnosis, it's imperative to do gene sequencing, to try to figure out the blueprint of a tumor and because really you, you need that in order to even guide the initial use of a targeted therapy. I, I tell my patients, it's like a lock and a key. You have, the, have to have the right lock and use the right key for those drugs to work. And so if you don't test anybody, you have no idea, you're in the dark. Um, so I, I wish I could tell you today that uh, throughout the world, that rates of doing that gene testing and initial diagnosis were 100. percent You know, unfortunately, they're still not where we want them to be, um, especially as the science is outpacing sometimes. You know, a, a lot of our practice sometimes, and so you know, we now have. You know, I would say I would argue nine different genetic targets for which we have either uh, drugs that are approved, depending on the country. Um, or very promising data. Um, and, and so that's the first step, just even doing that baseline sequencing. So I, I think for the lung cancer community, I, I think 
we've seen tremendous advocacy from the, from both uh, clinicians as patients and families alike, really just championing that that uh, need for doing you know genetic testing at baseline. Um, the question of you know, once someone is on a targeted therapy and then they, the cancer starts growing again, we started doing this at Mass General back in 2009, 2010, e even before we knew what we would find. And I would say at the time, it was by no means a, a standard. You know, it, we're, we're, we're a research hospital. And so part of our academic mission is to, to also, you know, do those efforts. I would, I would argue that now um, in patients progressing on targeted therapy, it, it has become more standard to try to, basically resample the tumor uh, in one of two ways to tr and look again at, at the blueprints, look again at the genetics and see how has it changed. Um, see, which, see which road you need to take to get past the blockage. Exactly. And you can do that with either a biopsy or, or now even blood tests. Okay. And how come blood tests? Yeah. So, so the, the changes that we're looking for are unique to the tumor. Right? You know, they're, they're only in the cancer, but we've recognized over the years by, by actually developing very, very sensitive tools that can de detect very small pieces of DNA that have been shed into the bloodstream. You know, cancers can release some of their contents into the bloodstream, including their own DNA as, as they're either dying or shedding. And we can, uh, using very sensitive techniques, actually find those uh, genetic changes in the blood. And, and that's how we can do it using a blood test. So let me see if I got this right from what you're saying, that, you, that really all lung cancer patients, you would argue, should be having this genetic blueprint done at diagnosis so we know exactly what the right lock and key combination is for the treatment. And then if the cancer stops, if uh, starts growing again on that treatment, do the same process again. See if the lock has changed somewhat, if you need a new, and then you can match a new key to it. Is that... Yeah, I, I think I, I think that summarizes it nicely. The the one piece I would add, just just for our, our patients out there, is that unfortunately not every patient will have one of these genetic changes. Um, it's it's about thirty percent of our patients will have one of those genetic changes. So unfortunately, that therapy is not right for everybody. Um, but thankfully, we have actually developed very good therapies for people. Uh, who don't have those alterations. And that's really where the immunotherapy is, is taking okay. on a, a very prominent role. But, so before we come to immunotherapy, maybe we'll just switch across to the West Coast. And Cheryl, um, just to put you on the spot here, um, in Canada, um, what is access like to this initial testing? Or, I think it's or maybe a, you could speak for Vancouver at least. I think, um, I think, Justin's, you know, pointed out some some great aspects, and one was how early they started actually testing for resistance, and which is, you know, sort of the discovery piece, right? We need to learn more about what's happening with these these types of um, cancers as they develop resistance to treatment, um, and and of course we've certainly done that on a discovery basis in Canada, but as, as you know, Paul and many of our uh, lung cancer patients that are logged in. A lot of our testing is is actually tied to treatment. So, um, because we have this universal healthcare system, if we get a new treatment that has a particular biomarker attached to it that uh, is packaged together for consideration of government funding, 
Um, and then if the, the drug gets approved, then alongside that, um, the, the test is also offered because you, know, you actually have to be able to implement or, or proceed with a program with the right information in hand. Um, and so in BC, we uh, developed a, a panel to look at multiple genes and, and as Justin's pointed out, some of them for which we at that time didn't necessarily have treatment options for, but at, did it as part of discovery and eventually were able to get that as part of practice and, and, and funded so we could identify mutations for which we could offer treatment for our patients. Similarly, and, and Paul, I think you were part of this program as well, when we were looking at resistance for a specific mutation, um, EGFR, um, there was a national group that got together to look at validation across the country for, for that type of testing. And then when we were able to get oxymeritinib funded, that testing piece went alongside with that. And then uh, reimbursement was in, enabled there where the government agreed that they would pay for, for the testing. So um, I think across Canada, the molecular testing has, has increased and I think more that we've been moving toward away from single gene sort of thinking about panels when the cost effectiveness component was there yeah. um, in particular because we have funded treatments that we can offer people. Right yeah that panel being one test which can detect you know all nine maybe of the subtypes that Justin was alluding to but actually many more than that instead of taking a bit of a biopsy to do one test and then a bit more to do another test and a bit more, and then suddenly you've run out of the biopsy. Um, I think that's right uh, from my experience as well here in Ontario, Cheryl, that molecular testing at diagnosis is pretty good actually. It's increasingly available to pr pretty much all lung cancer patients. The big discrepancy is in how quickly it, you can get it and whether your center does the testing itself or whether that testing has to be sent out to a different laboratory, which can lead to, uh, you know, in some some cases, some delays, which are really unacceptably long. Um, so that's a, a one work in progress, I think, to make that really effective for all Canadians with lung cancer. But maybe we'll come back to Justin here, because one thing that I don't think we do routinely in Canada is do that molecular testing again a second time when a cancer starts to progress in the way that we do a CT scan, we, we're not doing those additional blood tests or biopsies routinely. Um, but you're, at Mass General, that's pretty standard now, is it? it it's standard, standard for um, many of the genetic alterations. Um, but, but not all, just, you know, sometimes there can be a, um, you know, sometimes in, in the U.S., even health, you know, our health insurance companies sometimes will push back on that. If, if I can't name what, what the follow-up test, you know, therapy I want to use is, we, we, we've done this as also part of, you know, clinical trials and you know, to Dr. Ho's point about investigation and discovery efforts, um, because in some ways you need to understand what the landscape uh, of resistance is in order to then guide you know what what those next treatment and, and actually build the next treatments right i mean maybe i should actually not be too down on canada because there is a lot of really cool stuff going on um and we learned about some of that at the conference some of the projects going across the country um there's one 
project that's been done in multiple provinces called the value study, which was looking to do the liquid blood test biopsies that you mentioned earlier, Justin, when, when people are progressing on, on a targeted therapy. Uh, and they've started to find and have, have presented this at conferences, they've started to find these resistance mechanisms and being able to match patients to new treatments. So hopefully, you know, work like that will allow um, this kind of resistance uh, testing to become more standard. Um, there's other projects, one called a ring project, which took a bunch of laboratories across the country and gave them commercial kits so they could begin to develop their own uh, sort of validated testing so they can do a lot of this work um, in-house. And some really cool stuff that I think is more research at the moment, but in, in Toronto, uh, when people are progressing on some of these uh, targeted therapies, what's happening is they're doing a biopsy and then they take a few cells from the biopsy and then uh, essentially put it in a, a, like a culture and grow up an own, a, a little tumor, a little baby tumor, and they call them patient-derived organoids, patient-derived because it's coming from the patient's own sample. And then they've got this little sample that they've grown that they can then test new drugs against. Uh, and then you find a drug that's effective, feed that information back to the clinician. So this, um, you know, that's a research project at the moment, but pretty interesting stuff. And so you mentioned, Justin, 30% roughly of people would have one of these targeted groups. We've had some webinars on EGFR and ALK that would be in that category. Next month, we've got the immunotherapy webinar, but maybe you could tell us a bit about resistance and immunotherapy because that's your title, Director of Targeted Immunotherapy. Yeah, it's, maybe I, I, I straddled those two worlds, but um, targeted and immunotherapy, but... Um, yeah, you know, the, the, um, and, and, and I just, just gave a talk on this to our cancer center director last night, you know, uh, you know, one fundamental difference, I think between targeted therapy and immunotherapy, if we're talking about resistance is that with targeted therapy, it's almost as good as we get in terms of gear. I, I hesitate to use the word guarantee, but it's the highest success rate we have in terms of likelihood of tumor shrinkage. If you have one of those genetic alterations and I, I'm meeting a patient and I prescribe a targeted therapy, that's as close as we get to knowing that, you know, there's a 75% chance that, that this tumor is gonna shrink with the targeted therapy. Um, so most patients will have benefit from treatment and then resistance can develop. And the medical term we use for that is acquired resistance. That is initial benefit and, and then the cancer starts to outsmart our therapy. With immunotherapy, I actually think we're still in our infancy of even developing the right terms. And because right now, I think too many times we just lump it all together, but there, there's clearly two distinct groups of people. There are some people who start on immunotherapy and unfortunately the cancer just grows despite the immunotherapy. I view that as, you know, I would characterize that as primary or intrinsic resistance is, is how I would characterize it. Um, and, and then there's a distinct group of people who do develop, you know, have a nice benefit and then the cancer grows. 
And it's likely that what is driving resistance in those two scenarios is likely going to be different um, but between those. Right now, they're lumped together um, for you know, scientifically, but, but I think they're distinct. Um, and I think we are now just really trying to uncover what those mechanisms are. If, if uh, surveying all of the medical literature, there are actually less than 100 cases, not just in lung cancer, any cancer, less than 100 cases that have profiled uh, acquired resistance to immunotherapy. And these drugs are now approved in more than 15 different types of cancers. So clearly, we have a long way to go in trying to figure out how cancers can escape the immune system. Do you think um, that, that I'm really glad you bring up that distinction between a primary intrinsic resistance, the drug just doesn't work, and the acquired resistance if it works and, and then stops. If you had a crystal ball here for immunotherapy, is um, for let's start maybe with that acquired resistance to immunotherapy. Are, are you doing the same sort of biopsies and, and, and blood tests when somebody who's on immunotherapy that stops working or are you thinking about it differently? No, I, I think that's a great question because I think we need to take the same inf research infrastructure that we've built with targeted therapies and apply it to immunotherapy. Say, even here, it's, it's by no means considered a standard of care to then repeat a biopsy and do all these things. It's still very much in the discovery phase. But I would argue that, that the only way we're gonna know what should come next is to do those discovery things. And immunotherapy more than other types of therapies, it's really tricky to figure out uh, new treatments in the lab. And the reason why it's really tricky to figure out in the lab is, you know, many times we're dealing with just cell lines, which is taking tumor cells in a Petri dish or uh, using mouse models. But all those, the, the, even the, the animal models don't have intact immune systems. You know, it, it, the, the way we get the cancer to grow is, is by doing it in, in a, a model that doesn't have an immune system. So actually figuring out what the best new treatments are in the lab is really tricky for immunotherapy. Actually, there was uh, maybe, seeing as you mentioned how difficult it is to do that immunotherapy research in the lab, I could just mention one of the other uh, research projects that, that, that came up at, at the Canadian Lung Cancer Conference, which it was a, a reference to the Montreal group led by uh, a, physician, a physician, Dr. Bertrand Ruti. And, uh, they're doing some really interesting work on why immunotherapy is not working related to what they call the gut microbiome. So the microbiome, we all have a microbiome. It's basically the, um, it's basically our bowels and what lives normally in our bowels and all the bacteria that um, is, is normal is called the microbiome. It's like the normal, uh, the normal atmosphere, uh, if you like, the normal flora that lives in our guts. And, if that gets interfered with because of a course of antibiotics or something, uh, it impacts the way our bodies deal with immunotherapy. And so, for example, there's some suggestion that antibiotics can reduce the effectiveness of immunotherapy working in lung cancer. So they're doing some really interesting research 
about trying to restore a normal microbiome and see if that will overcome, I guess, I guess either required or, or um, primary resistance, to, to, depending on the situation. Uh, That's a great point. If, if, if I may, for, for one minute, give, give a, an anecdote on that, which is that in, in our old approaches, especially targeted therapy, we're so focused on the tumor, right? Um, but immunotherapy, it's, it's, it's harder because we can't just look at the tumor. We need to look at microbiome. We have to look at the immune cells, right, that are, that are next to the tumor. And I, I, I uh, have a distinct memory of, you know, when, when our folks from our, one of our collaborating labs on targeted therapy started meeting with one of the immunologists, right? Typically, these groups are silos. And the targeted therapy group is explaining to the immunologist of how they're culturing cells, like tumor cells in a Petri dish, and just say, said, Oh yeah, we, we we take all the immune cells and we just throw them out, and then just get get the tumor cells, you know, just because they're contaminating. And the immunologist like just puts his hands on his head. You're doing what? You know, just just because in the targeted therapy world it is very much just the tumor, but now with immunotherapy you can't just look at the tumor. You actually also need to look what's surrounding it, and that just makes it much harder to figure out what's going on. Right. That was fascinating. Uh, and, you know, I know that, you know, a couple, couple of weeks ago when you gave the presentation, you know, people were really sort of wowed by the insights you had into this. Let me let me go back over to Cheryl. Um, Cheryl, uh, Dr. Gaynor gave that big presentation at the lung cancer conference, but there were other presenters too. And um, some that also touched on immunotherapy that we've just been talking about. Could you tell us maybe some of the highlights as you saw them from the conference? Yeah, I think um, one of the other speakers, uh, Dr. James Welsh, who is from MD Anderson and a radiation oncologist there also presented. Um, and the theme of immunotherapy kind of carries through because this is um, sort of what's new and exciting, I think, um, in, in lung cancer. And he talked about the role of radiotherapy and immunotherapy. And he gave us a, a little history lesson. Um, he was mentioning that there were competing physicians um, um, with their respective thoughts about what was going to be the next best thing um, in cancer treatment. There was Dr. William Coley, who thought it was going to be about priming the immune system. And what he actually did was slightly different in that he um, delivered uh, killed bacteria um, in, into patients to see if that would help response and in fact uh, proved to be effective. Um, but there was another physician, uh, Dr. Ewing, who was more thinking that radiotherapy was going to be the answer uh, for treating cancer. Uh, and in fact, um, Dr. Welsh brought those two themes together saying, well, maybe um, radiotherapy to some extent is actually helping, can potentially help immunotherapy. And then along the lines of, of Dr. Gaynor's talk was speaking about resistance. So when a patient is on immunotherapy and develops resistance, is there an opportunity to try to use radiotherapy to help regain that sensitivity to the treatment. So he presented some data or rationale why that might be possible, it may not be feasible for, for everybody, but, but thinking about 
radiotherapy as a mechanism to kill tumor cells, which would enable more of the tumor proteins to be identified by the immune system, how it may change the levels of certain cytokines or signaling proteins in the blood to turn on the immune system as another way. So um, he presented some, some research uh, around that, which I thought was really quite interesting uh, as a way of how do we integrate all of the tools that we have um, and use them to our best advantage uh, in terms of helping control lung cancer um, in sort of the longer term and how to optimize our tools. So we have these tools in play, but maybe by joining them together, we can actually do things a little bit more effectively. Um, so that was his focus. And then Dr. Spicer, who is a thoracic surgeon um, at McGill University, also talked about uh, immunotherapy and the role in surgery and thinking about opportunities, as we've just talked about, um, to, to learn more in that patients would receive immunotherapy up front and then undergo surgery and then doing an examination of the tumor that's actually removed to understand a little bit more perhaps about the environment in which it's sitting for those uh, where there was a good response. As, as Dr. Gaynor points out, we have to look at how the immune system is responding to understand you know, whether our tools are effective um, and looking across the spectrum of patients who had a good response and then those who had less of a response to maybe understand if there was that environment component that was influencing um, that. I think also, uh, Dr. Spicer reminded us that, you know, we don't always have to look to new tools to improve things for our patients. And, and he talked about something called prehab or prehabilitation, where he said, you know, if he's thinking about offering surgery to a patient, what is the best way to ensure that they're going to undergo surgery, uh, receive a benefit and recover quickly from that surgery? And so his proposal, which I think just makes so much sense and, 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 and it seems like somewhat silly that we actually had to investigate this in a trial, but he said, you know, maybe what we need to do is, is actually ensure people's exercise tolerance is better before they have surgery, that their nutritional status was optimized. Can we get people as healthy as possible, even in the weeks preceding surgery? And then saying, you know, this is a really big and stressful time in people's lives we should also have some psychological support to get through treatment. So, and his uh, study comparing people that had the support in those arenas versus those who had the usual care showed that people actually recovered their functional status uh, more quickly. So I, I think the, the two speakers, both in radiation oncology and surgery kind of remind us about how to use what we have more effectively to do better things for our patients. Yeah. Thanks, Charles. Yeah, I, I really like the prehab bit as well. And um, exactly right. It just goes to show that, uh, well, this is a, a cliche that I sometimes use in the clinic, that care is just as important as treatment in, in, in many situations, or sometimes more important. And so, you know, we were learning about the, the science and resistance and immunotherapies and radiation treatments, but just being fitter going into an operation was, was great. The other talk that I really liked if I could take a moment, was Dr. Kazaruni, who's a, a radiologist um, at the University of Michigan. And she is involved um, really as a national leader in the US in the area of lung cancer screening. Uh, and the, the whole idea of trying to, 
diagnose lung cancers at an early stage when they're still curable and we don't have to worry about resistance mechanisms because the cancer's gone. Um, and screening um, has been um, approved and running in the US for uh, not a whole lot of years, but for a few years now. Um, and uh, she described uh, to us the benefits of a national um, screening registry and, and how people who are being screened, their information is brought together to a registry to then inform uh, policy to how to improve screening and roll it out further. Um, so one of the issues um, in Canada we face is equity in access to lung cancer treatments. And so having those kind of um, programs will really help us to improve our services. Uh, lung cancer screening in Canada is not yet available. Uh, British Columbia, where Cheryl is, she would not forgive me if I didn't mention this, but British Columbia is the first province to announce a full lung cancer screening program, which will start next year. Um, uh, Ontario has a, a pilot program. Other provinces sometimes have, have a few small pilot programs, and we're really pushing hard at Lung Cancer Canada for our um, uh, jurisdictions in every province and territory to, to have access to lung cancer screening. So I really liked I, I really liked her presentation. And I think also just a comment to our screening is that, you know, it is a combination of the BC government, uh, the Canadian Partnership across uh, against cancer, and actually our BC Cancer Foundation. They raised 1.75 million. Um, to actually enable us to launch it. Because when you think about screening, it seems relatively simple. Somebody would have a CT scan or imaging to identify, you know, uh, the cancer. But we, as with any healthcare system, you have to think about all the downstream effects and, and how that's actually going to get funded. And, and so that, I think, is is the primary holdback for, for many of our promises to be able to launch it. So we were very fortunate that um, our foundation recognized this is an opportunity for us to do better for lung cancer patients. And, and so um, had a, a big virtual fundraising event for us uh, in the fall that enabled the announcement. Yeah. yeah. And I think the rest of us can look at what you're doing in BC, and what Dr. Kazaruni is leading in the US and, and, and other jurisdictions. Uh, we're going to just do a couple more minutes and then we're going to move to questions. Justin, if I could come back to you, um, the big elephant in the room, of course, for all of us for the last 12 months has been the pandemic and the lockdown. If we kind of try and tie that to some of the research or work that you're doing at Mass General and, and back to kind of resistance and testing and biopsying, have you been able to carry on with all of this during the pandemic or have you had to scale things back? I think that's a good question to, to talk about how sometimes uh, a major stressor like this can can force change. And, you know, obviously there have been many uh, changes that that are bad, right? You know, this has been a, um, a stressful year on many, many levels. But there are also some changes, you know, within medicine, the practice of medicine, you know, um, you know, uh, I think back to my practice a year ago now, and I rarely ever did a, a virtual patient encounter. Uh, you know, maybe once every like I, I barely the the technology was so clunky, and um, but this has forced that change, right? And, and I think that we're not going back. Um, but but it also has then pushed us to for some of these 
research efforts to try to use technology to also still get answers. So for example, uh, again, on a research basis, having a mobile phlebotomist, that, that is someone who actually a nurse who goes to the house and draws blood and does some of these blood tests looking at resistance you know, in the home. Now, again, not standard, but it's an example of something that would have never happened had it not been for the pandemic. Um, but I think it's, it's teaching us how can we still, you know, because cancer doesn't stop because of the pandemic. And so we need to continue our efforts. We just need to be thoughtful and innovative in, in how we're going about them. Thank you for that. Christina has joined us again, which is the, time, the sign that it's time for Q&A. Uh, Christina, I'll pass this back to you for the next 15 minutes. Well, thank you for, to our panelists and actually thank you to all our participants who are, are uh, joining us today because there's been lots of different questions. I'm just going to be mindful that there is 15 minutes left and so I'm going to ask everybody to keep their um, answers brief so that we may uh, get to as many of these questions as possible. So we've had questions here spanning really the diagnosis all the way to um, the actual treatments. And I'm going to direct my first question to Dr. Ho. And because it is about screening and BC has the honor of being the first province in Canada to have the uh, first screening program. And so some of our participants are look, listening and asking them, asking, you know, I'm not a um, smoke, I'm not somebody who smoked, I'm a never smoker. So what about us? When do you think we can get some screening? I think excellent question. Um, as you rightly point out, Christina, you know, most of the lung cancer screening programs have focused on an older age group and uh, people who have a history of smoking or are current smokers. Um, and, and that is what our planned rollout um, will be for the spring of 2020. But, um, you know, we meet many people that are diagnosed with lung cancer who have never smoked and wouldn't fit those criteria. And so with Dr. Stephen Lamb, uh, Dr. Renal Myers, and our, our group of respirologists here, we are looking at different ways in which we might um, characterize higher risk patients to identify um, subsets of people who might be more appropriate for screening. And so other investigations that we've looked at is pollution exposure um, and, and other aspects around that to see if we can hone it down, but certainly an area for, for more research, absolutely, so that we can help all of the, the lung cancer community. Perfect. So it's, it's something that's an active area of research is that patients that are, don't qualify now have not been forgotten. And we, we will continue to work on it until we can identify those, everybody that's been at, at risk for lung cancer, not just those at highest risk. Christina, maybe we should give a shout out to the first Lung Cancer Canada or the biggest Lung Cancer Canada research grant that we gave to uh, Dr. Myers, who Dr. Ho just mentioned, uh, studying breathomics early detection so the the chemical composition of exhale breath uh, so if you're on the line and I, this is a shameless call but if you want to 
uh, donate to Lung Cancer Canada, we can, <laughs> we, we're, we're funding research projects like that. Thank you, Dr. Wigley Price. I'm going to um, go over to the East Coast and I'm going to direct the next question over to uh, Dr. Gaynor. Um, there's been a lot of questions, Dr. Gaynor, in the, in the, that have been submitted to us about immunotherapy and how, um, and its role in those with targets. When do you give it? Do you give it before the targeted therapy? Do you give it after the targeted therapy? What is then the success rate and what has been the, uh, what is the approach that you think might be upcoming? Great question. Um, I'll, I'll try to answer it briefly, although we could spend an hour on this one question. The way I think about it is that cancers with, lung cancers with those targets are almost like a fundamentally different form of lung cancer. So one of the, the predictors of, of how, uh, whether immunotherapy is going to work is, is whether there is something for the immune system to recognize on the tumor. Is there something that's different about the cancer that distinguishes the cancer from everything else? And the more mutations in a tumor, that is the more misspellings, the more the tumor looks different than the rest of your body. So, cancers that have these, these targets, those tend to be the only targets in the tumor, the only mutations. Um, they, they tend not to have a lot of other changes. And so they look very, 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 very close to normal. And so what we found is that immunotherapies really haven't been uh, successful in those, in those groups of patients. That is that the, the the likelihood of tumor shrinkage is just simply lower. And for us, the concern is that the mix of immunotherapy with targeted therapy, it just, they don't mix well. Um, that is, we see more toxicity uh, with a combination of the two. So it just, it appears that uh, those with targeted therapies at this moment, um, with the tools that we've got, do better on the targeted therapies, but this is something that's an active area of research and we just need more understanding in this area. Yeah, so, so I would always prioritize targeted therapy for those patients. And uh, we have ongoing studies looking at the role of immunotherapy for distinct patient populations. Perfect. And I'm going to um, ask Dr. Wheatley Price, our president, to put on his medical oncologist hat now and answer one of the questions. Uh, there's been a lot of questions also about uh, biopsies. So how accurate is liquid biopsy? Can it ever replace the tissue biopsy? And if uh, is, and when, when, when should it be done? You know, I, I might I might co-opt Dr. Gaynor to to answer that with me because he really is more of an expert than this uh, in this than than I am. Um, but I, I think you heard him say that, particularly for people on targeted therapies, when there is progression, then we like to get a better understanding of the the new genetic fingerprint of the cancer. And you can do that in these two ways. You can either do a, a tissue biopsy or you can do um, a, a blood test. The problem is neither one of them is 100% accurate. And the other thing is they don't entirely overlap. So it's a bit like a Venn diagram that if, if you find something in a tissue biopsy, you'll probably find it still in the blood test, but you may not. And if you don't find it in the tissue biopsy, you might find it in the blood test, but you may not. So some cancers don't shed their DNA 
as well into the blood. Uh, so you might not pick something up that truly is there. And conversely, some of the biopsies themselves, when you take the, the tissue sample, and Dr. Gaynor, I mentioned this as well, you know, that his immunologists were shocked when they discarded all of the other stuff to find the cancer cells. But sometimes there's a whole lot of other stuff, dead cells, and there's, there's not much actually live cancer to test in the sample. So there's, there, there are challenges with both uh, tissue and, and blood tests that they, they're not entirely concordant and, and neither of them are 100% accurate. So I'm not sure that entirely answers your question. I mean, I think when we get to a future state, uh, we'll be reliant more on the blood tests as a, as a routine test because it's easy and safe and quick. But I don't know, Justin, do you want to add something to that? Yeah, I, I would just add, I, I, I agree with that. I, I, I view them as complementary. You know, and I think that that's getting to your point that, that they can provide different pieces of information. They each have advantages and disadvantages. Sometimes you just don't have enough tissue from a biopsy or you've exhausted it. Um, and, and that's one scenario where the liquid biopsy can be helpful. But only about 70% of tumors actually shed DNA into the bloodstream. So um, if you don't find something on the blood test, it's not to say that it's not there. So if you find something, it's helpful. If you don't find anything, it's like a non-diagnostic test. It's not negative. And we, we should mention, Christina, for the Canadian context, that these blood tests are, are um, they're either a research tool or you pay for them privately. Um, and there are um, a couple of very good uh, commercial uh, providers of these services, but they're, they're and there's a Canadian company actually based in, in British Columbia, which is, which is doing this as well, but they're not all the same. They don't all test exactly the same things. And the cost is, is generally a four figure bill. It's, it's, it's not, they're not cheap, they're often thousands of dollars. Um, so a lot of the research that actually was highlighted in this area at the Canadian lung cancer conferences is in trying to validate new and effective um, ways of doing these tests that make them affordable and accessible. So for our patients that are listening out there, one of the, the questions you should be asking if you do go for one of these tests perhaps can be what, what um, biomarkers are being tested and what, uh, how many mutations is in the test that you're getting. Right. So maybe just a very, very quick example. I, I saw a, a young man last week, so he's a young man, he's my age, uh, so, young man, um, uh, never smoked cigarettes in his life and has been diagnosed with lung cancer. And we had done some of uh, the molecular testing to look for the, these genetic subtypes at our own lab, and we didn't find any, but we don't test routinely for all of them. We just test, as Dr. Ho mentioned, the ones where we've got an available treatment. But there's a chance, there's a reasonably good chance that he'll have one of the other ones, these subtypes, and Dr. Gaynor mentioned, nine that you you feel there's treatments for um, and we really test for five of them so i was explaining to him that you know it would be ideal if we could do further testing and 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 then so he left and he's not a, a wealthy man and the test that one of the test options would be about six thousand seven hundred us uh, canadian dollars with the exchange rate uh, so we've been working around and actually we're going to try and utilize a, a research program um, that actually was also highlighted at the Canadian lung cancer meeting called Octane, 
which is an Ontario initiative, which is just coming to an end. So we're going to sort of squeak him in to get this testing. So I think to your point, Christina, uh, people should ask their oncologist, um, you know, what molecular testing is available to them? Um, are there research protocols that they could enroll in, which would which would get this information for them and for their clinicians? Um, and if they've got insurance or, or deeper pockets, then you know there are these private pay options. So we've got a few minutes left in the in, in the webinar, and I'm going to turn my second last question back to the CLCCO and direct it to Dr. Ho. Uh, at, the at the times when I've been had the fortune of attending the CLCCO, one of the things that really strike me is the community feel of the conference and how nurses, um, residents, trainees, and radiation oncologists really are all encompassing. And I noticed that you find a couple of ways to honor those who've really contributed to, to the Canadian landscape of lung cancer. I'm wondering if you can comment on that and tell the audience a little bit about that. Thanks, Christina. You're, you're absolutely right. It, it is uh, a relatively small community across uh, Canada that focuses on lung cancer treatment. And at the Canadian Lung Cancer Conference, we take an opportunity to recognize um, our, our peers that have contributed to research, to mentorship and advocacy um, through the Lifetime Achievement Award. And so this year it went to Dr. Vera Hirsch, who is a medical oncologist at McGill University in Montreal. Um, and she actually has, has a career that has spanned decades um, and contributed to a lot of the early work with EGFR and, and ALK uh, clinical trials. So those are our targeted therapy options. And even um, one of our other speakers referenced the fact that she had just enrolled uh, another patient um, in a surgical trial looking at a neoadjuvant or immunotherapy before surgery. So her contribution to our knowledge base across Canada, her mentorship of the many medical oncologists that now are focusing on lung cancer uh, was something that we took an opportunity to recognize at the meeting this year. And then I noticed there's also something called the Betty Rice Award. And thank you, of course. Uh, we also have the Betty Rice Award, which is a, an award um, from the Rice family because their uh, mother, or their family member had passed away from lung cancer. And that is an opportunity for us to recognize some of the trainees um, that are involved in lung cancer research. And so our awardees this year were uh, Dr. Sally Lau, who's currently at Princess Margaret Hospital, but is actually at BC Cancer for her uh, medical oncology training. And then Dr. Katie Jasper, who is a radiation oncology trainee um, at BC Cancer as well. So opportunities to foster future lung focused oncologists. Perfect, thank you. I, and these, uh, these generosity of families who have lost loved ones um, to honor the, the memory of their loved ones have really contributed to the Canadian lung cancer landscape, such as the, um, the Rice family, as well as the Ogram family, which Dr. Whitley Price mentioned before. So before I close out this webinar, I just want to touch on something that we've been, Lung Cancer Canada, we've been getting a lot of different questions on in the last uh, few weeks and the last few months. And is that question of vaccines in relation to lung cancer patients? Are lung cancer patients eligible? When will lung cancer patients be vaccinated? And I'm going to turn that most difficult question over to our president, Dr. Whitley Price. Yeah, thank you, Christina. Um, 
sure all of us are um, a little anxious about the vaccine and issues around it, and it, particularly as we watch other countries um, seem to more effectively vaccinate their populations than we're able to do in Canada at the moment. Um, I think the bottom line is that a lot of the vaccine trials did not include lung cancer patients or, or, or generally cancer patients at all. So we, we don't have tremendous um, data to say one way or the other. However, we do know a lot about the, the types of vaccines. We do know a lot about their general safety. We do know a lot about giving other kinds of vaccines to cancer patients. So I think almost, um, almost universally, the, uh, the healthcare professional side of lung cancer is confident that we should be all getting vaccinated and lung cancer patients are at higher risk of complications from COVID, so should also be getting vaccinated. Now, that's where it gets uh, an easy thing to say. There are, of course, there are gonna be individual cases where it's a little different, so check with your team. Um, the other issues, of course, now is, well, when is that gonna happen? And are lung cancer patients going to be prioritized uh, ahead of other members of the general public? And that's something that we don't know yet. Uh, these policies are still um, being, um, uh, being developed. Uh, so we, we don't know uh, in each jurisdiction, are the cancer centers going to be offering the vaccine to cancer patients or is it going to be in vaccination hubs? Uh, we, we don't know that. So I would please ask you to, to pay attention to that. Um, at Lung Cancer Canada, we're trying to advocate for lung cancer patients to be, um, uh, to be offered the vaccine sooner. Uh, and really watch out for that. But unless you've got a very good reason when you are offered the vaccine, you should take it and just check with your team if you're on treatment like immunotherapy or chemotherapy or a targeted treatment, uh, just or radiation or you're coming up for an operation, just check with your team if there's an optimal timing to get the vaccine. Thank you for that, Dr. Wheatley Price. And I, I Lung Cancer Canada is putting together a special section in, on our website that tries to collate all the provincial plans as they become available. So please take a look out for that. Um, and on that note, I just want to thank all of our panelists who are at the two o'clock hour for this webinar, Dr. Gaynor out in Massachusetts, Dr. Ho out in BC, and our, uh, our moderator, Dr. Whitley Price in Ottawa for this webinar. And if you enjoyed this webinar, I encourage you all to sign up for our next webinar, which will be happening at the end of March. And that's featuring what's new in immunotherapy, uh, featuring Dr. Uh, Roz Jerkins from uh, uh, as the ch uh, our chair of our medical advisory committee, as well as Dr. Julie Bramer from Johns Hopkins University. And with that, we close out this webinar and thank you all for participating. Thank you all for sharing your day with us and we wish you a wonderful rest of the afternoon. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen, Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore Can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at LungCancerCanada.ca.